the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. A look at replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how, what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary? And when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in? Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor. And uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were they were down to around oh 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would seat 600. It looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle, plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that, that this church was virtually unleadable. And so they talked about leadership, but really they, they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discrete duties. You know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care. But really, leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about was there is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again? In your book, you refer to them as members of the of the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, there is the sense of of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't at the end of the day seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything. And then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a, a small corporation or miniature fiefdom. One of the, the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that, that required a lot of faith, that, had res that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, you know, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness 
in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity according to our tradition, we will be open to significant change. And it kind of turned the tables on the, you know, the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church. And, you know, I don't wish to, I want to get in trouble here with listeners and, and seem to come off as if I, I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we, as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, uh, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a couple of basic uh, principles here, um, certainly the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, discipleship, evangelism. I mean, that, that's kind of the, uh, the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward-looking. I, I, I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of, uh, you know, having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run one to Christ down through the decades or the centuries, but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a, um, okay, and so what have you done for me lately, as part of, of the way <laughs> the Lord himself might, uh, might judge a church? like that. Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back, just like you did. You reached backward to the Bible to to talk about what churches should do now. And that's what I did with this congregation. They had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh, but but doctrinally sound faith-infused things in their past. And so the people who were, who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition. They were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you looked at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition. And you could find there many times in the church's history where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back, just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history. But if that history is rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership. Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a sense of uh, 
connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations. I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compel you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, gee, look how great we used to be, uh, that that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of, you know, our, our, our relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so too ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship, as we mentioned. And so that sitting in the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from? That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so that, and that is what I talked to them about. But now what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition which then shamed them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who, were, who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case or a sarah or just something that's you know good for historical you know trivial pursuit then they end up with a with a maybe a a temporary you know temporary life and and growth but it ends up being very very shallow because they don't they don't they don't really grasp that what they've been bequeathed uh, uh, f- from the past and so I think there's a message about the past that both sides tend to be getting wrong. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking, they keep turning back to uh, the Reformers, turning back to the, to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're, now you're talking my language. So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward, and they wish to just singularly cling to the past, and others are too rapid or in a rush to to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward. And there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. We'll time out, update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in because they are declining. And I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if, if you see this. Uh, one of the churches that I, I attend regularly has about 1,200 people going there. And on one Sunday, the pastor asked by a raise of hands of how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord? Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, ch- churches if they are 
you know, out of duty. They're getting jobs. They're, they're, they're uh, uh, sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in. And, and they're not learning to evangelize. And so this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years, uh, I've, I haven't been invited to one person's house yet. Uh, or out to lunch, um, they had the glad handing thing and, and the you know shaking the hands, get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But but they're not teaching what Paul said about uh, uh, the gift of hospitality. Hmm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, he dies, you know, whatever reason. The church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be the, a family, as well as be a family to their their neighbors and their coworkers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not. They've not. They're not being taught hospitality. So, what what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow, some really good observations. What about that, Doctor Devine? I want to out a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos, and my uh, uh, youngest son is a is a he's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it, and it's a remarkable thing. And so they're they're most strong in the ways that that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this, the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and and the church is is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger because people are not going to use their time to be involved in, in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. and I, But I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is, can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key, because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or, or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of, of a lack of real proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of, out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they, they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone? Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they, they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago. And uh, they're, they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these, in these areas. And I'm, so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see, uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. You, are you getting a sense that the emphasis on, and I'm going to meddle here for a moment, uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at, <laughs> uh, there's been such an emphasis 
on so-called uh, church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment, or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes, and I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven, uh, and, and various things that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of um, sort of figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, as a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. That churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the, the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts of teaching us how to do church right and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Ten th mentioned that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their, their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about um, the shortness of the time that you have left, and questions with regard to the, the significance of your life, and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. 
Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <coughs> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a, you know, very... Uh, with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we, we haven't cap, you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years, and four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had, because I'm an old man now, and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, And then there are very specific things over the... 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned the 7th Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of, uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging postdoctoral fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted, and, and then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not going. <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan. And, and, uh, and they you know, basically said, we're a young army, and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. 
So somebody said I should go talk to my boss, and uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving. And his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service, and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan, and the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the grain segment of American population, and yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight, as you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have, uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ. But then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes. In fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, 
as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa. Seniors um, um, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70%, were seniors. And 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in the, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes. And they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping the, you, you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author in our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, They have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. 
I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who were, um, who their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we we live in a very age-graded uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives. Uh, we really work our entire lives, and and you know so the these are structures that are really lifelong. So we we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work, and the church needs to challenge, you know, to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs, uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs, help us, uh, you know, do some late life planning, end of life, aging in place initiatives, uh, helping people prepare for uh, uh, caregiving. And now we're talking about, you know, middle stage adults who are worried about their aging parents and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table, and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming. And uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.